welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you, and I'm so excited to share in this series on heaven. There's a line that I believe we have all said a million times over, and we've said it without even thinking twice about it. I think I said it a couple times, or at least thought it. Um, I celebrated my brother's birthday this past Friday, and I, I, I remember thinking this as well. And you've probably said it when you have had a great family meal at home, and your stomach is full, and your soul is satisfied, or when you've gone on vacation, and you put that away message, right, so you don't get any notifications. It's such a good feeling. Um, or when you're just you're out doing something you love with, with people that you love. Or maybe if you your house is is loud and noisy and you have lots of kids, just that quiet moment in the morning where you have your cup of coffee or tea and you're looking out the window and you think, or you say out loud, it doesn't get much better than this. Think about it. Like, Can you think of one time, one time in your life where that was even remotely true, even if it was just for a second? I can think of a lot of moments that I said that or thought that. It doesn't get better than this. But it's not true. It does. Life Things do get better than this. Something is better than the world that we're in right now. The most extraordinary moment on earth, it pales in comparison to eternity, to what a new heaven and a new earth will be. And even the most ordinary moments in eternity, they will be greater, far greater than our most perfect moments here. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, speak as only you can speak. May we return to you this morning as our one true love. Holy Spirit, may your presence captivate us anew in this time. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation and we're going to be seeing what it says about heaven. The Apostle John wrote this, this book when he was on the island of Patmos around uh, mid-90s AD. And, and when he wrote it, although it wasn't written for the 21st century U.S. church that we find ourselves in, it could still be relevant. It still is relevant to us. You see, that church, it was plagued with this with persecution. They were faced with falling into being fearful and even hiding their faith, even just being like spiritually complacent, just going with the flow. And I think we can relate a little bit to that. Uh, but he was saying, here's this vision, and I want it to be an encouragement for you to endure what's to come. I want it to be encouragement for you to endure oppressive forces. So cling to this future hope, this hope that Jesus will return. This vision that John gives, it urges us as the church to fix our eyes on Jesus, to follow him even though there might be suffering and adversity, because there will be a final battle. There will be a showdown where the church can either choose to resist evil and follow the lamb, follow Jesus, and we'll be forever with him in heaven, but there's also another choice. The church can choose to follow, as as John lays out in, in the Revelation, the beast, Satan, and we will suffer death, and there will be defeat. And as Pastor Tim preached last week, the time is of the essence, and only by turning to Jesus does salvation come. Much of this morning's message that I prepared is derived derived from this book, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's a great book. Every chapter has a different question about heaven. And I bet you there are questions that you've asked, or at least someone has asked you. And so I would encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. It'll just give you, start to give you ideas about what heaven might be like. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Revelation, or if you're on the patio, it's actually in your your handout. Um, Abby put in the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. If you're at home, go ahead and find it in front of you. And as you do that, I just want to place the text, Revelation 21, in the context of this narrative of Scripture. There's this biblical theology concept called bookend theology. 
And it means that the story of scripture, it begins with God in eternal glory and it ends with God and his people also in eternal glory. And so this first bookend is the first two chapters of the Bible, right? Genesis one and two, there is glory and there is dwelling with God. And then Genesis chapter three, sin enters and Satan distorts creation and humanity falls and there is judgment. And all the evil that we see in this world, that we experience, comes from that place, from Genesis 3. So that's the first bookend. The last bookend is the third to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 20. God removes his enemies, Satan and death and evil that first entered in chapter 3 of the Bible to complete this story of redemption. These last two chapters of the Bible then, Revelation 21 and 22, they don't simply just restore the first two, they go beyond them. They go further into a world that is fully ordered, that is holy, where God is fully present with his people, and that completes the story of creation. But here we are today, right? And, and we live between these two bookends. On one side of us is Genesis, and on the other side, Revelation. Revelation that John gives, it's about a future glory, this redemption, God redeeming the past, but it's also about our present. We live in an in-between time. And Randy Alcorn, he says, we are hearing the echoes of Genesis's Eden, and we are also hearing the footsteps approaching of our new earth and our new heaven. The realities of our forever home, they're meant to shape how we live our lives now. And so knowing what we can anticipate, it gives us hope, it gives us something to help us through life this side of heaven. But knowing what awaits us, that doesn't mean that we can become just passive bystanders. We're not waiting around for the, heaven of, the, the kingdom of heaven to come um, the way you wait around for New Year's Eve, right? The ball to drop in Times Square. In the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he says that Christians who are most present, I'm oh, sorry, who do the most for the present world, they're the ones who think most about the world to come. It's when Christians cease thinking about what's to come, cease thinking about heaven, that we become ineffective in this world. I truly believe that when we realize, when we understand what a new heaven and a new earth really means for us, we're empowered to remain committed when marriages get hard and when we're caring for people that are sick in our family. We will willingly pick up our cross and, and suffer and help those who need to be redeemed, who need justice, who are poor, who are marginalized by having this constant consciousness on our minds of eternity, that our eternity is secure, we, we're freed. We're allowed to live radically in love and sacrifice here and now. This sermon series that we're in is titled Living in the Realities of Eternity. So by coming face to face with the reality of heaven, it should embolden us, it must embolden us to live different. As I've been reading over Revelation over the last several weeks, it's almost like putting on these virtual reality goggles. Like you are stepping into a world that is unlike anything you've ever seen. And I hope this morning as we look at Revelation 21, you, you feel that, that this is a world that is unfamiliar, but at the same time speaks to our deep need, a deep need that God is, wants to be with us, that God wants to give us this eternal heaven. So we have a forever home. The three ideas this morning is that our forever home is new, it is perfect, and it is with the beloved. So um, I'm gonna, I asked you to pull open to the text, but I'm actually gonna read it to you, and I want you to close your eyes, I want you to close your eyes because I want you to begin imagining and use, um, just listen and hear and imagine what heaven will be like. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can go ahead and open your eyes. So if you look at verse 1, John says, verse 1 in verse 2 and in verse 5, he says, There will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And God says, he is making all things new. That's exciting. That should excite us right now. There's two different words for new in Greek, and one is kainos and one is neos. And neos is something that is, that is new uh, in respect to time. It bears no evidence on the past. But in the text this morning, John is using kainos, and it's something that has been transformed fundamentally from the inside out, rather than it just being a new creation out of nothing. Kainos, it speaks to the quality or substance of something, that it does bear evidence on the past. You see glimpses of the past, but it is still entirely new. And it's the same word that we see when Jesus is in the Last Supper, and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus is renewing. He is transforming this covenant between God and his people. And so communion, we take communion, we participate in communion, it's a memory, it's eaten in memory, but it's also in anticipation of we're celebrating being made new, being new in the kingdom of God with God. There's so many interpretations about the way in which, exactly how this, this, this first earth and first heaven will pass away and transform into something new. And there's lots of disagreements about millennium and rapture and antichrist, but that's not what this sermon is about. This sermon series, this, this sermon today, it is about the realities of heaven, what that will be like. And so we're not gonna get into the weeds of how Revelation 25, how it will come, or 21, how it will come to be. We're just simply gonna compare this old order with a new order. And we'll see that the newness, the quality is radically different. Scripture tells us that the old cosmic order of things is a place with bondage and decay, groaning in childbirth, Pains of childbirth, as Romans 8 says. And that is us right now on this earth. But the new order, the new order is where righteousness will dwell forever, as 2 Peter 3.13 says. In whatever way it happens, in whatever way that, that, trans, that transpires, the transformation of that new reality is what we get to be a part of, that God welcomes us into. And as a side note, I know so many people love the beach, and you might have heard in verse 1, John says, the sea was no more. Carmel by the sea, Monterey Peninsula, don't worry, okay? The sea, right, at that time, it was this idea of chaos, of evil, of fear. And John is saying, that has no place in heaven. There will be bodies of water, but, but the idea of, of fear and, and evil, that's not gonna be, there's no traces of that in the new heaven and the new earth. And so we live in this already and not yet. As I said before, the bookends, right, of Genesis on one side, Revelation on the other. And I fear that we wait for that newness of revelation of, of heaven without recognizing that we are getting glimpses of every day. We see it every day. 
the entire story of scripture, it is the story of redemption. God, everything he has done already, everything he is doing, everything he will do is to restore and renew this, this sense of shalom, this deep peace within us, this right relationship between us and God, but also us and one another and us to this earth. The author, Randy Alcorn, he, he draws out the parallel of the new heaven and new earth and he compares it to the Chronicles of Narnia. Has anyone read the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, like three people. Okay, more than that. Um, all right, so in the last book, Lucy, she's mourning this sense of loss. She's lost Narnia, this great world that Aslan created. And she is deeply grieved that the world that she knew so well has been destroyed forever. And so they're entering Aslan's country, heaven, and, and she's still looking back. She keeps looking back because she misses Narnia. She has a loss for Narnia. But the further she goes in Aslan's country, she notices something unexpected. And she notices some similarities. First, she notices some like woody hills in the distance. And she's like, you know, those look just like the hills on the southern border of Narnia. But they're different. But there's something different. And everyone she's with starts noticing these similarities. This, this something feels familiar to them. But at the same time, they can't quite put their finger on it. Something is different. Well, they come to find out that the Narnia that they left behind, that they thought was gone forever, never to be seen again, that wasn't the real Narnia. It was just a shadow of the real Narnia. And the real Narnia will exist forever, does exist forever. And it's the unicorn that's with them, and, and the unicorn just sums it up perfectly and cries, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have looked for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. That's what heaven will feel like. That's what heaven's gonna look like. So every healing of Jesus, every act of mercy in the name of Jesus, it speaks of a renewal and a restoration. It is a memorial to the Eden that was, but it's a signpost for the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. When Jesus healed people and he fed the hungry and he cast out demons, and ultimately when he rose again, each was a living embodiment of the future that God was bringing about. So the newness of our forever home is now and later. And as disciples of Christ, we have a mission, and that mission is to bring the presence of God into this world, the presence of God's future into this world. So every time that we choose to love in the name of Christ, we serve, we forgive, we fight for justice, we embody that future hope that we know is coming. God invites us into participate into making all things new. Revelation deals with eschatology, and that, that means simply just last things. I don't want us to miss that those last things can be put to use now, right? That the ending impacts how we live the present. I decided once in my lifetime I should run a half marathon. And so that was my goal, run a half marathon. But I didn't just wake up that day and head to the starting line and start running, right? That would be a little silly. I had to train. And so I would get up super early. For me, that's about 7 a.m. I know that might not seem early. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> Okay, your, my 7 a.m. is like your 4 a.m., so just imagine that. It's very early in my world. And I had to run, right, day in and day out, and rain or shine. And that got me to cross the finish line. So my goal of completing that, that half marathon, that formed how I was going to live my present. If we believe that our future is in heaven, then we're going to live different today. The second point is that our home is perfect. And I know as we talk about home, that the idea of home, maybe for you growing up, it wasn't perfect. It was chaos or it was fearful. And for others, the idea of home 
you have nothing but great memories. And I just wanna say, wherever, whatever you feel around the idea of home, it pales in comparison, good or bad, to what awaits us. Our eternal home is perfect, it is safe, it is loving. During one of my after-school programs in elementary school at Stevenson, we would walk from the Carmel campus to the library in downtown Carmel. And one of my teachers, Miss Marcy, she would play this game with us called the house game. And as we would walk down the street, we'd look at all these beautiful little cottages in Carmel, and she'd, we'd say, pick a house. And so we get to pick one of those houses that we wanted to have in the future. And then we would get to add to it to make it what we deemed the perfect house. Vividly remember, my perfect house had this. It had a swimsuit store. Uh, remember, I'm in elementary school, so it had a swimsuit store and every kind of swimsuit I ever wanted. And then from the store, there was a water slide that went all around the house, like wound all the way around the house, and it landed in a giant, beautiful, like perfect temperature pool. And then next to the pool, there was an ice cream shop with every flavor of ice cream and every topping you could ever want. And that's what I thought in elementary school, like that was my perfect house. And that's like funny, yes, I thought like ice cream and shopping and pools were gonna fix everything, but I grew up and I replaced those childlike dreams with other things, right? People said, get a 401k, start investing, get the perfect job, do all these things to make your life feel safe and comfortable. But guess what? You can do all of those things and our world still has sin in it. Our lives still have sin in it. So the perfection of our forever home Guess what, it's not fleeting, it's not temporary. Heaven, it heals our deepest needs, our deepest desires, and God gives us what our heart truly longs for. Look at verse four. John says, we will, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither then there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All these former things that were brought on by the Oh, that was the end of the verse, sorry, <laughs> I kept reading. <laughs> okay, so all these former things, right? Crying and mourning and death, none of that is gonna have place in heaven. None of that is part of our future home. And that is good news, that's great news. Just think of the tears that you've cried. I don't know your stories, all of you, but when I look around this world, I know that there are a lot of tears that have been, been shed. Tears brought on by violence and hurt. Tears brought on by people getting sick and having cancer or having chronic pain or just feeling shame and guilt for things we've done. Scripture says none of that is in heaven, none of that. And better yet, right, it says Jesus himself is gonna wipe away those tears. When we enter heaven, he will personally wipe away those tears and personally comfort us. Think about this verse in light of the year that we've had. 2.6 million deaths from COVID this collective reckoning in the United States of violence against black men and women. And just this week, this continued hate crimes against Asian Americans. God says none of that is part of the forever home. Did you know that our bodies, it carries grief in them long after we've, we've experienced that trauma? In this book, it's called The Body Keeps Score. The author explores how trauma, it physically reshapes our brains and our, our bodies. We're physically changed by it. In this life, we're not defined by the pain that we have, but it does shape us, it does change us. Over many years, I watched as my dad's health slowly deteriorated from Parkinson's. His speech suffered, his legs suffered, his eating suffered, and I think that eating was the hardest because he loved food, he loved desserts. But his earthly body, it couldn't sustain the weight of this illness, and so, although it's been two years since he passed away, I grieved and I mourned and I cried, but 
that grief still lingers in me. It's still there. And so when I read this verse, when I read that heaven will be free from mourning and sadness and tears, everything that has become all too familiar to us in this life, I have so much hope. I have hope that not only is my dad in heaven, he's eating all the desserts and enjoying everything that he loved, but I have hope that when I get there, the grief that's still in my body and in my mind, that's gonna be gone. Like, I won't remember that. And that is so, such a beautiful picture. But we can't forget that how redemption comes matters more than what we gain, what we gain in heaven. This heavenly vision of Revelation 21, it, it can't fully be absorbed unless we understand that a battle was fought and it was won, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, Jesus. In Revelation 5, John is weeping and he's weeping because no one can open the scroll and break its seal. No one seems worthy. Then he sees what he describes as the lamb standing as though it had been slain and the lamb takes the scroll and everyone falls before the lamb in worship and says, in verse nine, it says, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they shouted again in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. The lion's victory is his being slain as the lamb, as a ransom for a multi-ethnic multitude. You see, Christ endured the cross so that we could experience heaven. This new heaven and this new earth and all of its perfection, it's a product of Christ's faithful obedience on the cross and his resurrection that forever defeated death. From Genesis 3 until Revelation 20, the story of redemption is being worked out. But right at the middle of it is the cross. Right at the middle is Jesus. He is the only faithful one, the only obedient one to God who redeems the world entirely through his death and resurrection. Through his spirit, God pours out into sinners the resurrection life of Christ so that those who are in Christ, those who put their trust in Christ, we move from death into life, here and now, and also in eternity. And that in eternity, we spend forever in God's presence without suffering, without tears, without mourning. And in eternity, there's no room for imperfections. There's no room for evil. And so John lists in verse eight, all these vices that threaten to draw the church from God, cowardliness, faithlessness, lying, idolatry. None of that has place in the new heaven and the new earth. Part of the promise of the perfection of heaven is that the righteousness will not continue to endure the results of sin. And that those who, who renounce their faith and side, take the side of sin, that they will take their place in hell. That is also a reality of heaven. And so that's why we say, there but for the grace of God, I go. So our first point is that our home is new. And that our home, second point is that our home is perfect. And lastly, our home is with the beloved. And this is the heart and center of heaven. Take a look at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. When people die, a common explanation, right, is that they go up to heaven, they've, they've gone away. But those phrases, they don't appear in scripture when we talk about death. They've come about in just our modern conception of, of dealing with death, dealing with grief. And so going up to heaven to be with family or to float in the clouds, that's not how biblical authors thought about death. 
when Jesus is on the cross and he is dying and he's between two other men, he says to one, the repentant criminal, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And in the letter to, to the Philippians, Paul, when he's facing impossible persecution and he's wrestling between life and death, he leans towards the latter because he says his desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. And then to the Corinthians, Paul again longs for his true home and he says that he'd rather be at home with the Lord. So the consistent factor here is not that we, people will go to heaven. It's not about going anywhere. They all use this phrase, being with Jesus. The greatest blessing of the new heaven and the new earth is an unhindered fellowship with God. God declares this himself. He chooses to be in community with us. He chooses us. John says that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, it comes down out of heaven from God. It descends, and God is now dwelling with us. So there's this perfect indwelling that once was in Genesis is now complete. In verse 22, Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, He saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God is no longer confined to a tent or a temple or a tabernacle or even a sanctuary. The presence of God that was once limited, it now permeates everyone and everything in this new world. Jesus himself is the tent. He is the temple, and he is living amongst his people. Randy Alcorn, he says, we were all made for a person and a place. The person is Jesus, and the place is heaven. If that is true, if we believe that to be true today, then being homesick or nostalgic to be with God is to be expected. Church, we were made for heaven. We were made for a new home that is perfect. We were made to dwell forever in God's presence. That is our ultimate home. I began this morning with the idea, right, that Christians who do the most in the present world are those who think most, who, who know what is to come in the world to come. So what does that look like to put into practice? How do we live that out? Well, one practice is meditating. Meditating on what the shores of heaven look like. If we know what awaits us in eternity, we're given strength to endure today, to endure the suffering, and that knowing that our suffering in this life has purpose. In 1952, this woman, Florence Chadwick, she had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both directions, and she decided uh, to swim from Catalina Island to California's mainland. So on a foggy, chilly morning, she got in the water, and there were boats accompanying her just in case anything happened, and the fog was so thick. But she started swimming. For 15 hours, she swam. And on the, uh, she got closer, and, and she was just exhausted. She said, get me out of the water. Like, I'm, I'm done. I'm so tired. It's cold. But her mom was in one of those boats, and her mom kept encouraging her and saying, you got this. You're almost there. Keep swimming. But she just kept begging. She, she was tired emotionally and physically, so she just stopped swimming. And they pulled her out of the water and she got in the boat. And when she got in the boat, she realized that the shore was a half a mile away. She was almost there. And the next day, she was interviewed and she said, all I could see was the fog. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If she had just seen the shore, she said she would have kept swimming. Church, that shore, that shore for us is the new heaven and the new earth. Descending from God, it offers us eternal rest. It offers us freedom from pain and the promise of his presence. If we can just see through the fog and meditate on our forever home, I promise we will find comfort. It will energize us. 
And I want to encourage you, if you, this morning, right now, if you're sitting here and you are weary and you are tired and you don't know if you can keep swimming, if you can keep going, I pray that the imagery of heaven would fill your mind, that the Spirit of God would fill you with what awaits, and that would be your motivation. That would, that would get you through the fog that you're in. One way of doing this, it's so simple, is take a walk. The late pastor and theologian, Eugene Peterson, he used to take a walk every Monday morning, and he called these his Emmaus walks because he said his eyes would be open and he recognized God anew. So go for an Emmaus walk. I dare you to put no headphones in, don't take a phone, tell one person at least where you're going, but don't take a phone uh, and just go. Just be undisturbed in God's creation and look for those glimpses of heaven's reality right in front of you. If you hate walking, if that's not for you, that's okay. Meditate on eternity by putting your mind, dwelling your mind on the things above. Get in that rhythm of reading and praying and meditating. Read, pray, meditate until your heart is stirred. There's also a devotional that goes with the heaven book that Randy Alcorn wrote that's 50 days on heaven, 50 days every morning just dwelling on what heaven looks like. The second practice is get uncomfortable. So if if we're gonna be comfortable in a perfect home for all of eternity, then this life shouldn't be about being comfortable, about staying safe. When we realize all that awaits us in heaven, we should gladly give away our possessions. We should gladly give away our power and our influence to those in need on this earth. A small example, I think I've mentioned it before, is that I've been an assistant coach for two different teams, uh, for two different sports that I never played. Never played them at all. Never even went to a game, probably. But they just needed another adult to help, and so I volunteered because they know I love working with students. And so each time I'd show up to practice, I was super excited to meet the kids. Um, But then we started moving into the technical stuff of the sports, and I got uncomfortable because I didn't know what I was talking about. And so before the practices, I I would Google um, fundamentals in coaching or sports for dummies, just to try and offer something about like how to catch a ball or throw a pass or something. Uh, And it was for the whole season. I never really learned the sport. But here's what happened is my uncomfortableness, it became the bridge into students' lives. It became a way that I got to know them. I got to know their stories. And some of those students are now at this church, not because of anything super cool and special I did, and definitely not because of my sports skills. Right, but, but, but by being uncomfortable, it was an avenue, it was a way to bring God's kingdom purposes to earth. So that's a small example, one way God uses being uncomfortable for his glory. And I don't know what, how you might be challenged to be uncomfortable, but think about this. What comforts are you holding on to right now that you could share with others? What, what treasure, whether that's your time, your talents, your finances, your skills, what has God given you that you can use for others in a new way? Our forever home, it is there. It is waiting for us and it's beautiful. It's new and it will satisfy our every needs, our every desires, and we will be in the presence of God forever. Meditate on that. Meditate on the assurance of heaven that awaits those who trust in the Lord. And with that in our minds, let that allow us to live freely in this world, to live freely and radically with love and sacrifice to the specific task that God has called each and every one of us to. Amen? Amen. Amen. So in a moment, we're going to continue singing songs of worship to to our Lord, the only one who is worthy of our affection and, and adoration. 
as uh, was announced earlier, we have two weeks left until Easter, and so let's see how much we can collect for this Young Life Homework House in, in Seaside. Let's love them and, and bless them as much as we can. And as I close, would you stand, if you're able, for the benediction? Church, may we live out of the assurance that the God who began a new thing in us has already created a new home for us to dwell with him forever. Therefore, all glory and all honor and all praise belong to him. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.